Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 26, Infinite Improbability Drive Activated, where we will be looking at chapters 56 through 57 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of narrative causality. If you're new here, we have a little bit of an explanation of the podcast, and if you're not new here, feel free to skip this part. See you in a bit. Anyway, for all you newbies... Each week on this podcast, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens, and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will then take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian from Nemos of the Week, and then we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that you have either A, already read the books The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Slow Regard of Silent Things and The Lightning Tree, or You're just a weird person who doesn't mind having crucial plot details from the future revealed to you ahead of time. Because who gives a crap about spoilers? Spoilers. Spoilers! Needless to say, beyond this point, there be spoilers. Here be spoilers. Something. Here be spoilers. Also, a word to our community. While it is perfectly fine to critique the text as written, We will not stand for any abuse of the author who is responsible for it. All right, and with that, it is time for us to do our 45-second recap. You ready for this? Ready when you are. About ready to earn yourself some cherries? Oh, there's not going to be cherries tonight. Right, because we don't go grocery shopping for another week. But you know what I mean. No cherries here. Hmm. I mean, I'd make you have a cherry Pop-Tart, except I want them. We have some more cherry ripe, but that's not funny a second time. It ain't happening. Mm, We shall see. Anyway, let's go on and have you do your recap. Yep. In three, two, one, go. In the wake of his success, Quoth earns his Aeolian pipes and thinks he's the best, though he suspects an Ambrose snipe. Stanchion buys the lads around, and Thrup gives Quoth some dough, for the worth of his sound, while Quoth searches for his Aeloine, though. Turns out it's Denna, to the eye rolls of Bast, Quoth's patience with Chronicler grows thinner, at a description he blasts. Bast is seen better, but Quoth disagrees, and corrects the letters until he likes what he sees. 25.01 seconds. Told you no cherries. I think you engineered that so it would be short. Humph. Yes, actually, that's the point. (laughs) But what's the challenge in that? Engineering it so that it would be short. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you'll note that I give myself the challenge of putting in rhyming couplets, so... Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, let's get into the discussion. 
We chose this week to talk about this through the lens of narrative causality, which is the concept that things happen in stories because they need to happen to progress the plot. And this is all a story within a story, because it's being told by a character within it who has a vested interest in how things turn out. A lot of it ends up turning out in ways that maybe don't feel earned, but it's because our narrator is a character in the story and wants us to think of him in a certain light. For example, when Quoth is watching Stanchion walk up with that unreadable smile, he's sitting here thinking of all the things that went wrong, and as he's trying to stack his odds closer to million to one, which makes his success all but certain, <laughs> finally he finds out the handshake contains the silver pipes that he's been coveting for so long, but not before he envisions some sort of vainglorious kiss-off if he doesn't get them immediately on his first try. For so long. For so long. He's known about the Aeolian for what? A few weeks? A couple months, because this is his second term. Okay, so at most, so long is four months. Right. Except not, because he didn't even care about going to Emre until this month. This is the first time he's even been inside. This is the first time he's been inside. This is the first song he ever plays. This is his new used busted old lute that he's only been relearning how to play for maybe two months. That's nothing. Yeah, Quoth's sitting here like, ah, oh, that place will burn before I give it the satisfaction of any disappointment from me. <laughs> Good grief, kid. <laughs> You're 15. There's a lot of these instances of heavy-handed trying to convince the reader that something completely different is about to happen while telegraphing very loudly that this is BS. I'm reminded of the old saying where a dog bites man is not really news. But a man bites dog, that's news. Or just dumb. It is dumb, but it's news because it's different. So you're having to create all these expectations. You're setting up pins and hoping to knock them down in ways that at least seem like there's a doubt as to what will be the outcome. But because this is a book, there ultimately is no doubt about the outcome. It's all pretty much preordained by the author. And since we're at the midpoint of the story, it's clear that while this is important, it's not really the be-all, end-all for our protagonist. We start the chapter off with Quoth in a very small bubble of his available attention all being shoved onto that lute. He's restringing the lute. He sees that the end of the string does not look frayed. It does not look like it snapped on its own accord. He talks about how he checked, like a good musician, checked the lute strings before he left the university and before he went on stage, he knows that his strings are fine. Yeah. Much in the same way that I always safety save. He always checks his loop strings. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> He's sitting there in this little shroud of doubt, not sure if what he experienced was what everyone else experienced which is an interesting bit of self-reflection that we very rarely get from him, but he's ruminating. 
it's something that happens with anxiety disorders a lot. You start this spiral, this thought process of just infinitely going down and down and down like a toilet. And that kind of reminds me of something that was in John Green's book, Turtles All the Way Down. If you don't know, in Turtles All the Way Down, the main protagonist has obsessive compulsive disorder. I believe it's her therapist who tells her or she comes to the conclusion that spirals grow infinitely smaller the farther you follow them inward. But they also grow infinitely larger the farther you follow them out. He's following that spiral down and down and in and in, worried that what he thought was great and good and things that he would be outwardly boastful about may not have been what they appeared to be on the surface or what they appeared to be in the moment. And the longer the wait to find out stretches, the further inward and inward he goes. Till all he can do is focus on the end of the string that was snapped. And of course, he assumes nefarious intent caused that string to snap. Later on, we get more little breadcrumbs as to what could possibly have caused that to happen. There are little mysteries that get resolved real quick and sometimes resolved by assumption within this story. This is one of the ones that gets solved pretty quickly, or it's assumed that it's solved rather quickly. The end of the string is cut rather than frayed. Quoth assumes that someone is trying to sabotage him. And he jumps pretty quickly to the assumption that it's Ambrose. After he finds out that Ambrose is exhibiting symptoms of binder's chills, yes. Which, for all we know, Ambrose could have been doing some sort of foolhardy party trick at his table, unrelated to any of this. Or he could legitimately have been sick. Yeah. Stanchion kind of does a little bit of a dirty trick, and I think that he's got that trick up his sleeve often, but we don't know that because this is Quoth's first time at the Aeolian. I kind of get the feeling that this is the equivalent of that reality show judge who drags out the results of some great big challenge. The winning dish is not. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think he's doing it for show to drag it out and to create an element of surprise. And of course, Quoth is doing a bit of mind reading here, assuming that this is a no and that if it's a no, then he doesn't even want this anyway. Which is bullshit. Yeah, that uh, is a little annoying, but turns out, of course, it is the pipes. The winning dish is Kvothe. <laughs> <laughs> so then adult Kvothe does almost that rocky at the top of the stairs pan around kid Kvothe in story mode. Da da da. No copyright strikes. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> <laughs> and Quoth holds up his tiny little piece of silver that fits on a necklace for the entire building to not see because it's probably hidden in his thumb. But he's so relieved. I don't like that there are so many of us that 
do the, okay, I'm not going to get my hopes up, but by not getting my hopes up, I'm going to say, well, I didn't want it anyway. Because it's okay to grieve a loss of something you wanted rather than sit there pretending that you never wanted it in the first place. If you never wanted it in the first place, why in the heck go through all that effort? Yeah, it's the old Aesop's fable of the fox and the sour grapes. And Quoth has many sour grapes. Even preemptively. Usually preemptively. <laughs> He's done this a few times, especially at the Aeolian. I mean, the last time that we talked about this, he was saying, if Ambrose is part of this club, I don't want anything to do with it. Merp. Well, and he also had that when he got admitted to the university. You've doomed me to poverty and failure. This is terrible. You guys suck. Right? <laughs> but I think that behind all of the boastfulness that he does have is that very insecure 15-year-old. And it makes sense that he would be insecure at that age, especially given his background. He's come up in some very difficult circumstances. He spent the last three years living on the streets in a brutal city. Lest we forget. <laughs> it goes a long way to explaining a lot of those insecurities, and I think those are at least earned, and they're a legit character flaw that makes sense. I don't know that the insecurities themselves are a character flaw. I think that his handling of them, the way that he defensively protects himself by lying to himself because he's not lying to anyone else he's not telling will and sim that he would rather this place burn to the ground he's telling the audience of adult Quoth's story that kid Quoth was like this place sucks i don't care if they don't want me then i don't want them why include that detail it does tell you a little bit about the mindset though that drove him it's not always pretty, it's not always good, but it does at least seem human. That's true. It makes him and his story feel more real. It's interesting that you brought up Rocky, because I was specifically thinking of Rocky when I was reading this section. Because there's basically two types of sports movies. There's sports movies where the hero wins at the end, and then there's sports movies where the hero loses at the end. The ones where the hero loses at the end are far more uncommon, but they're also a lot more satisfying in many ways. They're more interesting. You can't predict that ending nearly as well. Right. It's, again, that underdog loses. That's to be expected. That's why they're the underdog, right? In real life, yeah. Right. Underdog wins. That's a story because that's something different. That's news right there underdog does something improbable but when the story can find a way to say okay we're going to take you out of this as a story and we're going to actually let the probable thing happen and then we're going to examine what that means then you can get some really interesting storytelling so i mean rocky to spoil a 30 year old movie is it 30 years old more than 30 <laughs> I thought it was more than 30. Yeah, it was like 70-something, so it's... Oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> it's like a 40-year-old movie at this point. Who am I kidding? <laughs> to spoil a, a movie that's decades old... Much better. <laughs> let's leave it that way. <laughs> to spoil a decades-old movie, 
Rocky loses at the end. Apollo beats him with a technical knockout. The movie then finds a way for Rocky to have a kind of triumph in that he did something difficult. That he went 15 rounds against a much more accomplished boxer who is better than him, but he went further than anybody else had than anybody expected him to, and that was a kind of victory, and he had to make peace with that. That's a much more complicated story, because that's saying that internal success and personal growth are not necessarily going to translate to material success. It challenges the notion of a meritocracy that we oftentimes delude ourselves into thinking, that successes are the result of individual excellence, you can have individual excellence and still lose. And finding ways to hold on to that excellence in spite of the lack of material reward for it is a challenge. And sometimes the quote good guy, the protagonist, the person that we've been rooting for the entire time, just doesn't get it. Just isn't able to do what they set out to do. And sometimes what they've set out to do is literally impossible. And it's okay to acknowledge that attempting to do something that is literally impossible may not succeed and generally doesn't in the real world. That's not to say don't try for things that you think are ambitious. That's different. But if your goal is to dye the sky purple, I'm not sure you're going to get there. In my job, we oftentimes set goals for ourselves that we know we will not achieve, knowing that in striving to achieve these, we'll end up much further than had we set our sights lower. Even if we don't hit the goal, my goal was not really our actual goal. It was an aspiration. All right, cut to Quoth is now off the stage, milling about, talking with Sim and Will, and Sim is crying his eyes out because he's a sensitive soul. I think the way that we are learning about Sim is really nice. Sim is the one character that really, really undercuts the toxic masculinity that you would normally see in a teenage to early 20s young man in a story. Especially living in essentially a boys club. I mean, the university is at least 80 to 90 percent men. And the few women that are there seem to be the exceptions that prove the rule. I feel so bad for all the women that are there because seriously, 10 women for every 90 dudes? Oof. It's a dramatically imbalanced proportion of the population. Much like a lot of other stories. Tons of guys, very few women. And this chapter does not shy away at all from reducing the women in it down to physical descriptions and tropes. Their set dressing is how it feels. It's kind of ooky. I do adore Sim. He's not afraid to be weepy. He's not afraid to be emotional in public. He's in the middle of the entire Aeolian most of them are not paying attention to him. I'd say that only Quoth and Will are doing so. But also, Will does not make Sim feel terrible for expressing himself in a way that 
includes tears. The description that we get of Will is that he's also a little red around the eyes, as if he's maybe had a few tears of his own. It's also notable that this is a response to a romantic ballad that's about love between two people, which, you know, oftentimes for a lot of young men is not necessarily what they want to talk about. They'd rather pretend that it's about the conquest than the relationship. And that conquest could be in terms of a relationship with a woman. It could be in terms of physical prowess and battle or what have you. Or bed. Or both. Ability to wield a sword. <laughs> Sometimes a sword is just a sword. Anyway. But talking about Will and how he reacts, this to me humanizes him a lot. He seems to have a lot of the performative, going back to last week's lens, performative masculinity chauvinism stuff. But when it comes to his friend having a genuine emotion, he's he's not judgmental and he's not derisive. We also know that he has his own sensitivities. He doesn't like seeing his friends bleed. He doesn't like seeing his friends hurt. So he's got a little bit of sensitivity himself, which again, I think lends him a little more dimension. And in the first case of Kvothe truly acknowledging his friends as people that he feels not only kinship with, but a little bit indebted to because of their kindness. Kvothe says, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. He does appreciate their support, even as he doesn't ask them for help. And he doesn't always see if they need help with anything. He doesn't look for ways to help them always. Ever? In fact, the only time he really helps them is in getting drunk. And even then, he's bad at it because he has no money. Thank goodness for the generosity of Stanchion, then. <laughs> to that point, I like the line, I thanked him earnestly from the bottom of my rapidly thinning purse. <laughs> I wish that that had been seven words. Nope. <laughs> Not at all. So this bit where both tipped an imaginary hat to him, at your service. And Stanchion replies, yours and your family's. And that seems almost like a Rue response. It seems a little like maybe Stanchion was a traveling performer. Or he's come from a line where they were common. Again, your family. That just really seems to fit with the way the Rue described themselves, not just as a company, but a family. There's just a few little hints here and there that just give me the sense that Stanchion has a connection with them one way or the other. I just thought that was really fascinating. I will say that I'm a little disheartened by the fact that we get a better description of the drink Metheglin than we do of any of the female characters throughout this chapter. Yeah. Um, also, we got the narrative trope that we'll see time and again of if you haven't, then I can't describe it. Right. <laughs> Which is convenient, considering that all the readers of this story live in a different universe and thus cannot know it and cannot have this experience. It's kind of an annoying little narrative tick 
because it's simultaneously condescending and lazy, because then I don't have to describe it. <laughs> also, in case you hadn't noticed, I tipped an imaginary hat to him. It's seven words. <laughs> the exchange of at your service, yours and your family's is seven mm -hmm. words also. We go along, Will and Sim get drunk. Everyone toasts to Savian and Aelowin. To Kvoth's credit, he's the one who said, and Aelowin. There's the question of where did you learn to do that? Play a missing string, I mean. And Kvoth deftly, we shall say deftly, avoids the question. Just something I picked up. Which is both an answer and a non-answer. And then the flood of people who want to talk with Quoth starts to trickle in because Stanchion has made himself into a bit of a valve. First we get Count Threp. Threp's a fun character. I enjoy him quite a bit, as you know. As I mentioned last week, I see him as sort of a high fantasy Weird Al Yankovic, which is something that's always great. He has a keen wit. While he may not necessarily be the greatest of musicians himself, he certainly knows enough to recognize talent when he sees it. He knows enough to know how a lute's mechanics work and what that missing string actually means. He also knows enough to be impressed by Kvothe's recovery. I like the description of, he laughed as if I'd played a joke on the world. Threp is a delightful character. Not only is he very much willing to express himself musically, even as he acknowledges that he is not the best, and he's okay with that, but he appreciates those that do have that ability, that do have that talent, and he wants to reward them for their service or for their talent. Or for their music. He wants to encourage them to continue following that passion. And in our world, and very clearly in Timorant, survival requires money. And he has money, which he wants to share with the people that bring him joy. Even as, in this case, said joy is more of a catharsis from the song that was chosen. But Threp wants Kvothe to continue following this dream. And he asks him a question about what is a good number. And Kvothe is clueless, has no idea why this is being asked. And when the conclusion of seven, seven words, wonder if there's a connection. When seven is a good number is the conclusion. He hands Kvothe seven talents. And Kvothe is stunned because... I don't think Kvothe has ever held seven talents at once. Now, most of that belongs to Davy, if he lets it. But the idea that there are some people who have extra and can and are generous with it, I think is a little bit foreign to those of us who don't have quite enough to scrape by, or those of us who are weighing our own future against the future or livelihoods of others. Speaking of our own world, I get the sense that many times we devalue creative pursuits as being frivolous and 
not being things that deserve much in the way of payment. However, I also think that in many cases, people forget about the amount of time and money that it takes just to be able to pursue many of these practices at even just a baseline level. Having to pay for lessons, having to pay for college. There are people who have masters of fine arts that they have to pay back student loans. And yet the thing that they went to learn, that they paid to learn, is so undervalued that it may take decades to dig themselves out of the hole. You consider that even as these things are seen as frivolous, people's lives are better when they have a good book to read. People's lives are better when they have a piece of music to listen to. People's lives are better when they have a beautiful painting to look at. All of these things add value to our lives in ways that don't necessarily easily translate to monetary value because they don't necessarily enhance productivity or anything like that, but they make us happier and they help make that life worth living. And Count Threp sees the person behind the music or behind the painting or behind the book and wants to encourage them to continue and acknowledge that he is appreciative of them. We go along and I note that before Quoth is willing to look for his Aloween, he wonders where Ambrose is. The Tom to his Jerry. <laughs> There's note that Ambrose looked bad when he left, pale and shaking. And when Fenton had binders chills, I think I said something to the effect of Chekhov's binders chills. Enter Ambrose and his binders chills. But that being said, wouldn't Will and Sim... Even in their drunken state, wouldn't they recognize Binder's chills? Yeah, they've had sympathy classes. They're aware of a lot of this stuff. I would have assumed that if that was the case, which we are led to believe it is, I have no real reason to believe that Ambrose isn't as much of a jackass as Kvothe is leading us to believe. I don't think that this is a subversive... This person is not my antagonist. Yeah, this is just another in the line of hostility between the two characters. It's fuel for Kvothe's fire. Even as he's doing a little bit of mind reading, even if it wasn't Ambrose, it's beneficial for Kvothe to believe that it was Ambrose. It's like how Michael Jordan would make up perceived slights so that he would have motivation to beat someone the next day. Quoth imagines Ambrose drawing on his own body heat to his own detriment, and then he feels self-satisfaction at the, I finished the song in spite of him. Never mind that just finishing the song at all is its own triumph. Never mind that he earned his damn talent pipes. He then comes back to hear that Sim has his own series of encounters with Ambrose that are probably just as bad, if not worse. And Sim would really enjoy it if Ambrose got some comeuppance, but I don't think that Sim would engineer any of them. It's not his style. So one thing that I notice about the next section is Kvothe seems to divide his well-wishers into two categories, 
and he treats them very differently. There are the people who are applauding him for his skill in performing this song and doing so with a broken string and all of that stuff, and those who are moved by the emotional contents of said song. And he draws a distinction between them, and he basically says the people who recognize the skill in doing what I did are the ones that I care about. I don't care about the people who are moved to tears by the song itself. I'd also say, though, that he separates them into men and non-attractive women, and then attractive women. <laughs> yeah, that's another set of categories that he has. So he talks about Maria. She was the lovely, golden-haired harper who had tried for her talent pipes and failed. She was pretty. She was prettier than she looked on stage. But that's not always the case. What the hell is that about? Why are you even bringing that up here, Kvothe? I mean, do you judge the attractiveness of the men that are up on stage that way? I realize that Kvothe seems to be attracted to women, but he doesn't seem to be attracted to the person. He seems to be attracted to the body parts. <sighs> it's very much 15-year-old mindset. And then Will continues on with his chauvinism. For more time than we spent with her in the first place. Will's criteria here are basically, does this girl want to sleep with me? If yes, then I will sleep with her. Also, he assumes that a little bit of flirtation towards Kvoth, or even just being nice to Kvoth, means that the girl that he's interacting with wants to sleep with him. So an interesting thing that I have heard, not my turn for interesting fact, but I don't care. Anyway, it is harder for people to determine whether or not a couple that they are watching has been told to flirt with one another or just be nice to one another than anyone would ever think. Because sometimes women are just nice to men and they, and they don't want to fork them. And the reverse is also often true. This is where you get the Bullshit. myths that men and women can't be just friends. As though being friends with a person of a different gender is a consolation prize. Right. And I hate that notion. I have many friends that are women and I don't have any sexual designs on them. That's not even on the table and I don't mind. They're my friends. I value them as people. Thank you. That's the wording. I value them as people. And I value their friendship. Their friendship means a lot to me. Same thing back. I have a lot of friends who are male or gender nonconforming. We don't want to just... Our friendship isn't based on the idea that we're just waiting for our partners to go away so that we can go have a tryst somewhere. For instance, one of my closest friends at work is a woman. And she and I know each other well, and we value one another's friendship and partnership. And we also know that that's all it needs to be. And that in and of itself is valuable and worthwhile and good. And I am in no way jealous of her. I love her. She's wonderful. And I'm really glad that you have her as a work partner. Heck, I even got to officiate her and her husband's wedding. It's pretty awesome. All right, 
I didn't really like when Simmon goes to Wilhelm. Don't you see he's after a more dangerous game than some low-bodiced councilman's daughter? <sighs> That's Simmon playing to the toxic male crowd. And... He's not good at it. No. It reduces women to objects of hunting. It also implies that if someone is wearing a dress that has lower cleavage windows, for lack of a better term, that that means that they're lower class or that all they want is sex or all they're good for is sex. And that's gross. It's very gross, especially when this character does not show up again in the whole story. She has no agency. All she is there for is to be ogled. Yeah. And she doesn't even get a name until this chapter. And we'll never speak of her again. And so then Quoth goes on to his sort of Cinderella hunt. Except in this case, instead of trying to find someone who fits a glass slipper, he's looking for someone who can do the perfect pitch and octave of a song. He is looking for someone with a voice that is fair and terrible as burning silver. But he goes on this fruitless hunt looking for the girl. He has waited long enough where most reasonable folk have left. He didn't care enough until this point to go looking for the person who saved his bacon. To me, it seems like also it might have been easier if he had just waited at the area in the front where everyone would know where he was. It's not like he can hide very easily. His hair is red as flame. And it's not like this person wouldn't want to come talk to him. Or they might not want to come talk to him. That might be on purpose. So either way, this hunt is pretty much fruitless. It's either for a person who doesn't want to be found, in which case, knock it off, or it's for someone who wants to find him and will find him if she knows where he is. It's the old saw of if you get lost in the woods, stop trying to move around and find your way out. Stay where you are. And let someone else find you. Exactly. And then we get our little itty bitty taste of, of gay panic. This did not need to be included. If this is an attempt to include gay characters, don't, not, no, not this way. No, no. Because while Quoth was not outright hostile, he was flummoxed. And the way that this is particularly written of he sees the last table and a couple there. And the fair-haired one, the first time that we get descriptions of people that aren't gendered, it's really obvious if you're looking for it or if you're keyed to this kind of thing. There's a fair-haired one and a dark-haired one. And they're both men. Ah! Oh. And then they flirt with him. Not every gay dude is going to flirt with the 15-year-old musician who is clearly upstairs looking for someone. They tease him, but the reality is that they wouldn't have had malicious intent or even like that jokingly malicious intent. I know a lot of straight guys that buy into this whole gay panic or trans panic feel like, well, of course they're going to hit on me. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't hit on every guy that I see <laughs> or every girl that I see. I don't do that. I don't just look at people and go, you know what? I'm going to go make them uncomfortable. 
Yeah, it's a trope that's really worn out, and it hasn't aged well in this book. I do believe it was more common when this book was published. Witness all of the gay panic comedies that were out in the early aughts. This just didn't need to be included. The editor's bad. Humph. Humph. And then finally he hears a voice that matches the singer of the Aloween part in his song. And lo and behold... She's beautiful. It's Denna. We know it's Denna. We who have read further know it's Denna. And then in the interlude, Quoth all but confirms it. It's Denna. Oh no, he actually just confirms it. I think that those of us who have the theories that maybe this isn't Denna, or maybe Quoth wasn't talking about Denna, and maybe talking about Ari or Davy, forget that this chapter exists, because he spells out that he was talking about Denna the whole time. I myself, a couple episodes back, even said something to the effect of not quite knowing if it was Davy or Ari or Denna. I think that Foth believes that the most important woman in his story is Denna. And I think that he's wrong. I agree with that assessment. And we get more than three pages worth of Foth just talking about Denna in terms of physical attributes. And he says, my trouble vast is that she is very important, important to the story. I cannot think of how to describe her without falling short of the mark. And I wrote in my copy of the book, he could try something other than physical appearance. He again falls back on the, if you haven't seen her. <laughs> then you wouldn't know. And Bast pipes up, but I have seen her. She has a crooked nose. Bast isn't better, but Bast is also written to be a person who is meant to be read as not caring about anything more than skin deep. He's written as kind of foppish so that he will appear natural in just stopping at the physical attributes. Quoth, we get his entire internal dialogue. We're supposed to know that he's deeper than that. And yet... And yet he isn't. His ability to actually have a meaningful relationship of any kind, whether romantic or platonic or familial even. Or a teacher-student relationship. He can't help but challenge it. He's never able to get beyond that surface level interaction with people just at all because he's so afraid of being seen for who he really is. He's so afraid of expressing his true concerns. He never even listens beyond just the surface level words a person says to him. And this doesn't matter their gender at all, really. He's bad at this with everybody, but he's especially bad at it with women. Not only that, but he doesn't fall back on just describing men by their physical attributes. He at least knows something about Will and Sim that isn't they have dark hair or a shy smile. Anyway, Bast, always the imp, he points out that all the women in the story are beautiful. And while there are not very many of them, it still gets tiring when the only description of any of the women is, and she was beautiful. But I do note that Davy is not described as beautiful, and I do note that Ari is not described as beautiful. 
but their physical appearances are still written about and we can extrapolate to believe that they are. They're both written as conventionally attractive. At least. Even as Ari is waifishly thin and given a little more description about her inner self. And through all of this, Chronicler is dutifully writing along everything that he hears. Which doesn't please Quoth all that much. Well, Quoth is afraid of describing Denna incorrectly. As though that's the most important thing, and yet all he's doing is describing her as a physical shell. He's not describing her as a person with a rich inner life and agency. But he also talks about her in past tense. Yeah, I get the sense he's like, okay, well, I'm worried that if I describe her to a profiler, it'll look wrong. But that's not the important part. What makes her important to the story is what she means to Quoth and what her inner motivations are. And he never really plums into that. How can I make any sense of her for you when I have never understood the least piece of her myself? <laughs> Because you don't care about anything other than her physical appearance, you dolt. And I also kind of get the sense that Quoth doesn't really understand himself. He doesn't understand why he's drawn to her. He doesn't understand why she, of all people, holds such a place in his heart. And he doesn't really seem to have much curiosity about that. Accurate. For someone who claims to be so curious, there is no evidence... Other than him doing stupid shirt. So then a thing that is viscerally horrifying to anyone who loves that creamy, silky new paper or those oddly satisfying videos of people writing in calligraphy or having really great handwriting happens at the end of the chapter. When Chronicler doesn't immediately cross out everything that Quoth has rambled on about Denna's physical appearance, he takes the paper, smudges the ink, rips the paper, puts new paper in front of Chronicler and tells him to rewrite it up to the point where he starts talking about Denna. Ugh. I can just feel all of the little hairs on the back of Chronicler's neck standing at attention. This kind of reminds me of those memes about graphic artists who are giving customers exactly what they want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have been asked and did make business cards for someone. I don't know if I ever showed you bronze metallic cardstock exists should not surprise anyone silver ink exists very bright red ink also exists and a lot of people fall into the dunning-kruger effect with the part that says people who are not as capable have an overestimation of what they are capable of this person designed their own business card file and gave it to me to print in silver and red on bronze paper. 
<sighs> and he loved them. Yeah. <laughs> and I kept one of them for years. It's gone now, I bet. But for years to just remind myself that while the customer is always right, they aren't always right. Ain't that the truth. We round out the chapter with Quoth acknowledging that he will never be able to do justice in words to Denna's beauty. So why even bother? And scene. I think it's time to go to the Fernemos. What about you? I agree. I believe it's your turn. It is. I had a hard time finding the right person. Other than Quoth, we don't get a lot of any one character. But then you reminded me about Threp and how Threp was so concerned and so aware about the people who made the music that he loved. About Quoth as the musician, as the person, as the artist. And how Threp wants to show his appreciation by, in this case, giving him something of literal value, money, in return for the value that that song, that performance gave to his day, gave to his life. I know right now a lot of us are turning to creative works like books, like music, like TV during this time of pandemic because we are all perceiving that we are completely stuck in our houses and have nothing to do. But Netflix exists. There are memes and memes and memes about how we're going through and just binge watching everything on Netflix or that we are trying to buy books from Amazon and they are being deemed as non-essential services. What? I think it's important to show your appreciation to the people who have provided this relief, this other space for your head to occupy. I think that it's great that Threp wants to make it clear that he appreciates the artistry. I agree. I think that now is the time to show the artists that you appreciate how much you care by buying something from them or donating to a Patreon or subscribing to their YouTube channel or what have you, something that will actually help boost their earnings and help them keep food on the table and keep making the music and movies and songs and shows that we love. I think that touching on the Patreon is a really good idea, but I don't want anyone out there to think that we're asking for your support because we think we're entitled to it. Honestly, for me, I'd really like reviews. I'd really like the shares and going to our Twitter or our Instagram and clicking the little heart icon, subscribing to our YouTube channel so that I can get a custom URL that isn't a weird random string of numbers and letters. It doesn't have to be monetary. You don't have to show your support or your appreciation with money, especially if you don't have it to share. But showing it with your time, I think that that's great. And it doesn't have to be us. We're not asking for us. 
I appreciate so, so, so many of the artists, authors, musicians, jewelry makers, crafters that are out there. If you yourself are one of those, I'd really love to see what you've made. Just send us a picture of fan art that you've made or a little clip of you singing or playing guitar or any other sort of creative endeavor. Building a community around the art that you love. Sharing the art that you love. It all does go toward that warm, fuzzy feeling that a lot of us do this for. And yeah, we'd love it if you stopped by the Patreon. But we're not asking you to give any more than you have. Or more than you want to. And if there's other people that you feel more strongly about giving to, go for it. Just, I'd like to know who they are because I'd like to see what is bringing you joy. I want to learn more about our world and I want to be introduced to more music and more art. And if you've got things to share, go ahead and hit us up. Tell us all about it. We want to hear. And that actually is a good segue to our interesting fact of the week. This week it's my turn. So today we're going to be talking about bumblebees. As in the flight of? Well, I mean, they do fly, yes. And songs <laughs> were written about them and transformers were named after them. So these are creatures that depend on staying in sync with the flowering cycles of neighboring plants, and they typically go through a winter hibernation period. However, that hibernation period is typically determined by temperature as opposed to light levels. So as our winter periods have been getting warmer, bumblebees are coming out of hibernation earlier, but the flowering plants that they rely on for pollen and food are dependent on light and are not coming back at the same time. So how do they deal with it? For a while, scientists had thought that they just kind of made do and scrimped and saved whatever pollen they'd banked up until the flowers could return. However, scientists observed in an article published in the most recent edition of Nature that bumblebees don't simply suffer through the shortfall and instead have taken to strategically damaging the leaves of neighboring plants to stimulate flowering ahead of time. They've observed this behavior both in the wild and also under lab conditions. Whether the hive was out in the world or just in a contained lab, the bees did this and it had the desired effect. It ended up accelerating the flowering by up to 30 days, which is pretty impressive. However, when the scientists attempted to stimulate earlier flowering with their own leaf damaging, they weren't able to replicate the results, which leads them to believe that the bees may be using a method that the scientists don't yet fully understand. So, is that interesting? It would be ever so slightly more interesting if we knew what the bees were doing and could replicate it. But I do find the concept of a species adapting to local climate and global climate to be quite fascinating. But the idea that the bees would be able to figure out that by damaging the leaves, they could stimulate the flowers to provide their food source. They're very smart creatures. I knew that, but I didn't know that. They're super important. Absolutely. And uh, I think that that was a very cool bumblebee fact. 
I'm glad you liked it. No cherries for you. No cherries for me. All right, and so with that, it's time for our seven words. I believe it is your turn to pick from the books. Yep. This time around, there were not as many seven-word sentences. Lots of six-word sentences, lots of really long sentences. So I chose, it was like a stay of execution. When Threp hands forth seven talents, all of the tension, all of the fear and anxiety, the money stress, the food insecurity, the tuition insecurity, everything. Quoth hadn't even let himself believe that that night he would earn any money, and he did earn it. He gave part of his soul to his music, and Threp, being who Threp is, acknowledged, appreciated, and then provided monetary reward of sorts in return. But it's enough where Quoth no longer has to feel like the rug is about to be pulled out from under him. That paycheck to paycheck that so many of us go through, that I can barely afford my rent, how am I going to afford clothes, how am I going to afford food, how am I going to afford pet food, and then the guilt that you feel over whether or not you should even have your pet. There's a whole bunch of these things that we deal with day to day and the average American being $400 away from catastrophe at any given moment. And then knowing how expensive it is to try to get yourself dug out of that hole. Because you can't just save $5 here and $5 there and expect to no longer be in financial hardship. That's a fallacy. But to have a windfall like that, to have someone just casually take care of everything for you that you have been stressing over, that you have been holding tense in your body. It does feel like that you were just saved from the hangman's noose. Yeah, the relief in that sentence is palpable. I definitely can empathize with that. I drew my first carefree breath in two months. It felt good. All right, I have seven words from life. Mine is... He sees the universe full of coyotes. Oh dear. <laughs> A callback at this point. At one point, I don't remember what episode, but I could look it up. I'm not going to. Sorry, guys. At one point, we noticed that our cat, Sokka, had become fearful of the yips that could be heard from the coyotes roaming around in the plains nearby. Not airplanes, just grassy plains nearby. And ever since then, we have been teasing the poor cat about coyotes. Last night, he was looking about feverishly, as if he could see things that weren't there. They were all ghosts. It was like he was peering into this parallel universe filled with coyotes everywhere, and his pupils were huge and fearful, and he was just all over the place. And it was both sad and a little silly and a little funny. And very cute. He's never done that before. 
my theory is that he wasn't actually afraid of anything, but there might have been a fruit fly somewhere in the house. I think he was tracking something. Coyotes. Ghost coyotes. Yeah, our little podcast Sokka gives us a lot of entertainment. And a lot of seven-word sentences. Side note, if you feel lonely, adopt a pet. As long as you're not allergic to said pet. Don't make yourself miserable just for the sake of not being miserable, I guess. If you have the ability to care for a pet, now's a good time to do so. That's a better way to say it. Thank you. You're welcome. And with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me, too. And thank you, audience, for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss Chapter 58 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of The Friend Zone. Dun, dun, dun. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we have enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. But seriously, if you don't have the means, rating us, reviewing us, sharing us with your friends, commenting, subscribing to our YouTube channel, any number of those things. As a side note, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you'll find a bunch of silly videos, including videos of our punishments so far. The most recent one was a doozy. I don't know, I like the one where you had to eat the cherry ripe. You liked it. I did. Anyway. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Wonder if it can be picked up on like airplane. You're cute. Thank you. <laughs>